Welcome to this episode of Revolution and Ideology. This is Nick. This episode is a lecture given by Jared on the historical context of the Zapatista movement in Chiapas, Mexico. We have a few episodes planned in sort of a mini-series on the Zapatistas, where we'll be exploring um, some theories and stories by Sum Comandante Marcos, and so on. The Zapatistas are really Jared and I's favorite uh, sort of neo-revolutionary movement, uh, movement against neoliberal capitalism, the impacts of NAFTA, and so on. So this is sort of the first in that series. Uh, Jared's going to be giving us an in-depth historical context for sort of what led to the Zapatista movement. So here's Jared. One of the common threads in the rhetoric of the EZLN, better known as the Zapatistas, is this notion that they have been and are combating 500 years of exploitation. And what we're going to attempt to do uh, before we dig heavily into Zapatismo and the movement as of 2020 is talk about what those 500 years look like. It's going to be a super brief synopsis. I'm not going to be able to do full justice to the entire history of Mexico. Um, and I also want to start by uh, basically, the giving this disclaimer. If I mispronounce anything in Spanish, it, I apologize. I'm not a native Spanish speaker by any stretch of the imagination. But without further ado, let's kind of kick this thing off. So 500 years of exploitation. Most Westerners know what the Zapatistas are referring to. They're referring to uh, the 1492 voyage of Christopher Columbus, in which, of course, he sailed across the Atlantic and arrived in the Caribbean and brought with him uh, European ideologies, ways of doing things, and most importantly, exploitation. Um, Columbus and the later explorers or conquistadors that followed him were predatory. They were here not necessarily uh, to better the lives of the people they found. They were there to enrich themselves and, of course, enrich uh, the Spanish uh, and later on the Portuguese crowns. The important thing that we want to pick up here on is that Columbus saw the indigenous people that he ran into in the Caribbean, uh, the Taino Arawak, as less than, and so did his men. And it kind of set off, uh, it, it, it acted more or less as a template for later colonial endeavors. And in this case, not just colonial endeavors by the Spanish and the Portuguese, but later on, uh, the French in the north and eventually the British uh, in what would become the United States of America as well. But what we want to emphasize here in Central America are certain practices that Columbus brought with him, and most important, certain, most importantly, certain ideologies that he, once he realized the indigenous people would not accept, he then enforced uh, upon them. A couple of those ideologies include, of course, uh, Catholicism or, and later on other versions of Christianity. Uh, the indigenous people, of course, had their own way of thinking, doing, believing, knowing, etc. Um, more circular in terms of the way they thought about things. Sometimes multiple uh, deities were involved, a lot of animism. But long story short, there were uh, some ideological incongruencies that Columbus uh, and later on uh, as well missionaries tried to uh, enforce upon the indigenous people. But it wasn't necessarily just ideology. Ideology in this case, in this case missionary work and, and, and converting people to save their souls, this was just a tool. This was an excuse for the more material goals of the exploiters. In this case, they were looking for riches, a way to gain wealth. And at first, they thought this might come in the form of minerals like gold. And eventually, they did end up finding silver, even though they never found as much gold as they wanted. But 
this need to enrich oneself at the expense of others is a type of or a way of doing things that the Spanish really brought with them to the Caribbean and it led to one of the most mass it's 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 not even one of it's arguably the largest uh, uh, ethnic cleansing campaign in human history, the European exploitation of the Americas. Depending on your source, we're talking hundreds of millions of lives lost due to the various colonial uh, projects that took place on these two continents. And Columbus kicks those off. I don't know that this video has time to dig into all of the depth and specific primary source examples. We can save that for another time um, to discuss the ways in which they did these, these, the, they perpetuated these heinous acts. As far as uh, uh, what took place after Columbus's uh, basically rape and conquer of the Caribbean was that the Spanish never found all of the resources and what they were looking for in the Caribbean. So they decided that they would uh, continue to quote unquote explore and they made their way to the mainland eventually. And the most famous conquistador that made his way to Central America was Hernan Cortez. And he continued the long line of, of exploitation and colonial practices uh, set by his predecessors as a conquistador. And again, he's motivated to do this because he is going to gain uh, a lot of wealth for himself. And again, even though they f never found minerals, they were eventually going to find other resources that they could exploit and uh, basically commodify and send back to Europe uh, and make a lot of profit on. In this case, they were able to uh, find some resources that were unique um, some luxury items that they were going to be able to exploit and send back to Europe for profits. Things like sugar, indigo, various uh, types of tubers, potatoes, yams, etc. Of course, corn is a staple food. Um, these are the things that they were going to use to uh, generate their wealth. They never found those seven cities of gold or the fountain of youth, but they did find ways that they were going to enrich themselves at the expense of others. Um, Cortez, of course, is famous for eventually bringing down uh, the Mexica, or better known as the Aztec Empire. Uh, a, another conquistador, Francisco Pizarro, went to South America, and he eventually uh, was able to collapse the Incan Empire. And what was established there um, in, in basically what was the apocalypse for a lot of these indigenous groups uh, was a new colonial enterprise. And that enterprise is marked by certain institutions. Some of those institutions uh, must be discussed here in this history because what they do is they establish uh, basically uh, inequity uh, that lasts in many places to this day throughout Latin America. One of those uh, important um, institutions is the encomienda uh, system. The encomienda system is essentially a tiered system of, of well, it's basically racial hierarchy, but racial hierarchy that is used to rationalize and justify labor exploitation and land exploitation of those uh, below them. Dispossession, all of the things that go along with the colonial practices that I have been um, alluding to and inferring. At the top of the uh, encomienda system uh, were a group of people called peninsulares. They are of pure uh, Spanish heritage um, or Portuguese heritage if we're talking about Brazil, and they happen to be born back on the Iberian Peninsula. And then below them, you have, um, there's numerous pronunciations. We're going to go with uh, Creoles or Criollos or Creoles. There's three different pronunciations, but basically people of pure white heritage or pure European heritage that were born 
in the new world, quote unquote, new world. Um, and then below them, you have uh, mestizos, people that are half European, half indigenous. And then below them, you have people uh, known as mulatos that are half uh, uh, African and half European. And then at the very bottom of the proverbial pyramid, you have uh, pure indigenous and then pure African slaves. The encomium in the system wasn't just a system uh, to tier people based on racial hierarchy. The racial hierarchy, just like we were talking about with missions and religion, was merely an ideological tool to rationalize the labor exploitation and land dispossession that was taking place throughout Latin America. Um, and from there we have further uh, expansion uh, into, of course, Central America, even in what would become the Southern United States by other conquistadors like the Soto and Coronado. And with them, they bring this established way of, of basically doing things. Uh, and again, they think they're doing this, uh, or at least they tell themselves they're doing this because they are making the world a better place, not just for, of course, themselves, but everyone around them. They're spreading their religion, they're spreading their ideology, they're enriching themselves. Um, it's, it's, it's an exceptionalist mindset that the colonists are, are, are spreading. The colonized, however, are the ones that, of course, are suffering. And this, these systems that are established by the Spanish, things like, again, the missionaries, the uncommunist system, the land exploitation, um, the dismissal of indigenous ways of knowing, doing things, language, etc., all of these um, become hallmarks, especially in Mexico. By the time we get to, we're going to fast forward, by the time we get to the 19th century, um, a lot of the uh, uh, lower people on the Encomienda system, not just indigenous people, but people like Creoles, uh, Mestizos especially, begin to feel disenfranchised by being under the Spanish crown. And in the early 1800s, resistance movements begin to crop up throughout New Spain. The resistance movements really take hold as far as um, in Mexico um, in the central areas, um, particularly in a, a town called Dolores. And from there, many historians point to uh, uh, the work of a priest named Hidalgo and his march from Dolores eventually to Mexico City as the beginning of the Mexican War for Independence against Spain. I, Again, this is meant to be kind of a short summation or synopsis of Mexican history, so we're not going to go into the depth or detail that we probably uh, should right here. But long story short, Mexico, after uh, a lot of bloodshed, eventually achieves its independence in 1821. And begins to try and establish itself on the uh, basically Enlightenment era models of other recently independent countries around it, namely, of course, uh, Haiti and just to the north, United States. Um, and just like in both of those cases, uh, the first people that will suffer in the establishment of this new state are those that are most exposed, again, the indigenous people. Uh, they don't necessarily fit into the Enlightenment era ideals that are going around uh, Latin America at this moment in time. And so, of course, more of their land is taken and they are further and further subjugated uh, after the Mexican War for Independence. Uh, very quickly thereafter that, the United States, uh, uh, using uh, under the auspices, excuse me, under the auspices of Manifest Destiny, uh, begins an expansionist war against Mexico, better known as the Mexican-American War. They use the excuse of Californian and Texan independence to basically annex 55% of Mexico. And this may not have a whole lot to do with indigenous exploitation in Mexico specifically, but what it does do is it basically cuts the uh, available resources for redistribution in Mexico in half. Like I said, about 55% of Mexico is seized or annexed by the United States after the Mexican-American War. 
After the Mexican-American War, there is another intervention in Mexico from a European power. The French uh, intercede in Mexico uh, and install a dictator, Maximilian, even though he's from Austria. Um, And eventually, Mexico again is forced to resist and garner its independence uh, away from France. that point in time um, leads to what is known as the Porfiriato, and that is a, basically the dictatorship of a man named Porfirio Diaz, who, while not directly aligned with the United States, does have uh, some very industrial, modernizing, um, ideological uh, mindsets that will inform um, his vision of what Mexico should be. His, his, it's a, going to basically be a rapid, mo- rapid modern campaign launched by Porfirio Diaz. The unfortunate thing, again, is during these rapid uh, industrialization campaigns throughout the world, the first people to suffer are always going to be the indigenous populations that, for whatever reason, either choose or choose not to want to live that type of life or do not have access to that type of life um, because of the centuries prior of, again, labor exploitation, subjugation, oppression, uh, ethnic cleansing, abuse, uh, all of the above. The Porfiriato eventually, though, uh, I would be completely remiss to say that it did not modernize Mexico, but at the same time, enough people are, are left exposed and are not necessarily uh, given all of the wealth and advantages um, that the Porfiriato uh, promised, which leads to more resistance. And that resistance culminates in the early 1900s, between 1910 and about 1918, 1919, in the uh, Mexican Revolution. The Mexican Revolution is a very important point on our timeline here as it brings to uh, uh, the forefront um, our most important Mexican revolutionary uh, for our purposes here in discussing the Zapatistas, Emiliano Zapata. Uh, Emiliano Zapata was a poor uh, campesino worker uh, who essentially uh, fought for land and liberty and was able to garner a mass following as he was basically the person that would be willing to fight for the common people. Uh, One of his most famous phrases is that he would rather uh, 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 die on his feet than live on his knees uh, at the hands of the industrial and now what we'll just flat out call them capitalist exploiters of the early 20th century in Mexico. Uh, He would eventually uh, lead uh, enough of the resistance that other uh, resistance figures would also rise up, although not necessarily aligned with him, like Pancho Villa or Carranza. They would eventually lead their own resistance movements against Mexico. The Mexican Revolution really deserves an entire video um, on its own because of its complexity and all of the different actors that have different uh, basically ideological and material intents. Uh, So again, just like before, we don't have time to do all of that justice here, but it must be mentioned that the Mexican Revolution does introduce the idea, or it does introduce the character of Emiliano Zapata uh, onto the world stage, and it, it, it basically introduces into the Mexican ethos this idea of fighting for land and liberty for the lower ring Uh, or the lower tiers on the proverbial Mexican pyramid, which again was established all the way back during the Spanish rule and the encomienda system. Um, From Emiliano Zapata on, uh, the revolution ends up establishing uh, the institutional revolutionary party in power with a new constitution that would be introduced. The, the uh, The institutional revolutionary party, or better known as the PRI, would then more or less be the ruling, they would be the ruling party, basically 
basically through the 20th century. They won basically every election uh, aside from the 2000 election of President Vicente Fox. They become basically the establishment, which is funny that they call themselves revolutionary and very quickly forget um, the ideals on which they were in theory uh, negotiated with and founded upon uh, among the different revolutionary ideals floating around in the early 20th century in Mexico. Um, the reason I bring up the PRI in this case is, uh, unfortunately, they continue, even with a new constitution, many of the same practices that had been established way back uh, during the uh, uh, conquest of Central America by these conquistadors like Columbus, like Co uh, Cortez, like Coronado, like Pizarro. Um, they continue on the legacy of, of basically colonial exploitation, whether that's by like the United States or the brief uh, intervention by France. The pre doesn't really deviate nearly as much as we'd like to think they would, or as much as they would like to think they would, from the practices of before. And so, uh, again, the indigenous communities are going to be the ones that suffer the most under the rule of the pre. Which brings us, uh, importantly, to the resistance movements that begin to crop up in the middle of the 20th century uh, throughout Mexico. Uh, some are, are pretty famous, uh, like the Jaramistas. There's indigenous resistance in the southern state of Oaxaca. And eventually, we are going to get to uh, uh, the uh, birth of what uh, Bishop Samuel Ruiz called the Tomor Conciencia in Chiapas. Samuel Bishop Ruiz is an important character because what he brings uh, uh, to this indigenous resistance that began to crop up in the mid to late 20th century is this idea uh, of liberation theology. Whereas we would argue that Catholicism dating all the way back to the Spanish conquest was used as a tool for oppression, Samuel Bishop Ruiz um, decides he is going to use uh, his understanding of gospel imperative as a way to liberate those that are suffering. And that really, uh, begins to take hold in the late 1970s in the southernmost state of uh, southernmost Mexican state of Chiapas. In the words of Samuel Ruiz, the resistance that began to coalesce around this Tomar Conciencia in the late 20th century uh, was this idea to be able to take cognizance, to question received faith, wisdom, and conventions, to become conscious in a new frame of mind that people, things, qualities, conditions may not be as they had seemed to been supposed as they may have seen or been supposed to be, to try to discover, recognize, know them as they truly are, and in this knowledge to accept, to accept explicitly the obligations of conscience to do good. Samuel Bishop Ruiz is not the only uh, outsider that is going to be drawn to the plight of the indigenous communities in the mountains of uh, southern Mexico in the late 20th century. Uh, Sebastian, uh, well, allegedly, Rafael uh, Sebastian Guillen uh, Vicente will arrive in 1983 from Mexico City. Um, uh, he will be better known later as Subcomandante Insurgente Marcos. Uh, but he arrives in Mexico not necessarily because of some sort of gospel imperative, but because he has grown very disillusioned um, with uh, basically modern life in a capitalist uh, industrialized society. Um, and an earthquake in Mexico City 
in the early 1980s really um, kind of exposed him to the idea that it is those that are on the margins of society that are usually most susceptible to things like disasters and of course as we've been talking about throughout this video exploitation and he decided that he would take and put to practice all of the things he had been, been basically studying as a university professor of communications um, and philosophy um, especially leftist philosophy and try and apply those and he thought the best way uh, to do that or the best place to do that would be in the, again, already um, very fertile grounds of resistance in southern Mexico. So what we get when we have this kind of combination of liberation theology, um, far left-leaning, uh, Maoist, Gramscian, maybe a little Marxist as well, um, ideology uh, brought down to Chiapas um, into uh, or by Subcomandante Marcos, is what would come to be known as Zapatismo. Um, again, to reiterate, it, it's going to be this kind of synthesis of, again, modern left-leaning philosophy, liberation theology, and most importantly, indigenous wisdom dating back thousands of years um, in the Mayan tradition. Now, this works throughout the 1980s into the formation of what would become known as the CCRI, or the Clandestine Revolutionary Indian Committee um, in Chiapas. Um, and under them, in 1985, they form um, what has already been referred to in this video as the EZLN, the Ejercito Zapatista de Liberación Nacional, or the Zapatista Army of National Liberation. That will be formed in 1985, and that's when Subcomandante Insurgente Marcos will officially uh, uh, become the quote-unquote leader of that wing. He still answers. He's a sub-commander. He still answers to the CCRI, but he is the, uh, the, the one that basically runs the EZLN, and he will be a very important um, translator and speaker for the EZLN as they become more famous on the world stage. Uh, but that's for later on. In continuing this history, though, um, the emphasis here is that resistance um, continues throughout the 1980s in southern Mexico by these indigenous communities uh, until things basically uh, 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 boil over in the early 1990s. Um, essentially, the president of Mexico, Carlos uh, Salinas de Gortari, uh, decides that he wants to get on board with a new type of free trade agreement uh, with his neighbors to the north, the United States and Canada. It comes to be known as NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement. Now, uh, unfortunately for Mexico to be part of this uh, uh, agreement between these other two countries uh, for free trade, uh, they are going to have to make some changes uh, to some very important uh, fail-safes in the Mexican Constitution, most notably Article Number 27. You see, the Clinton administration, uh, which was the administration in charge in the, uh, the executive branch in the United States uh, in the early 90s, uh, was not necessarily willing to allow Mexico into NAFTA without removing the specific article. The reason is Article 27 provided uh, this a very important protection for the poor, the destitute, and most importantly, the indigenous communities of Mexico. It allowed them to hold on to something known as the ajito. The ajito is essentially uh, basically communal land, land that can be used for growing food for subsistence, uh, maybe creating some cash crops that be uh, taken to market and traded for other commodities. Regardless, it was something that was communally owned. Basically, it's public land 
land that is used by the people. It is owned by the people. It is the public people's land. It is the public land that can be used. Um, basically, I don't want to use the term welfare, but basically can be used um, to ensure the survival of, of everybody in Mexico, even those on, again, the lowest uh, levels of the proverbial pyramid dating back to the encomienda system. Well, the problem with this public land is oftentimes it was very desirable land because it was land that was good for growing cash crops, uh, or it was land that happened to be sitting on oil reserves, or it happened to be land that was conveniently located for foreign um, enterprises, whether that's for tourism or, or whatever else. So essentially what the Clinton administration uh, pressured Salinas de Aguirre to do is essentially rescind Article Number 27 of the Mexican Constitution, um, as well as the Mexican Congress. They also play a crucial role here, but again, they're all basically members of the, the PRI as well. The reason this is important is once you rescind Article Number 27, all of that land becomes privatized. And once that land becomes privatized, uh, uh, it will then be more or less auctioned or sold off. Now, the only people that can afford to purchase that land will be those with, of course, means. And that would be foreign investors um, or maybe even wealthy Mexicans themselves. But once that land becomes privatized, uh, the people that used to live on it and work on it then have a very difficult choice to make. They can um, either choose to, depending on who the investor is in this land, choose to try and stay and assimilate to that way of life, which essentially means, in some cases, maybe working on an assembly line in a factory, um, or they can choose uh, to leave and have to find a new place to live uh, somewhere else, which, of course, leads to a mass immigration spike in the 1990s. Again, there's no irony in this. One of the reasons immigration has become such a big issue um, uh, as far as the 21st century is concerned can be dated all the way back uh, to 1994 NAFTA, when a lot of land that people used to be able to live on in Mexico was privatized. And of course, then people were forced to leave and had nowhere else to go. Needless to say, a lot of them looked uh, uh, northwards. So it's kind of interesting, uh, or if not ironic, that the immigration problem that a lot of Americans um, feel angry about was also caused by those very same Americans. So that's neither here nor there. The third option for the indigenous people is not a choice they would want to have to make. Um, they, without land or a way of making a living, would just die. And that's not an exaggeration. There is the very famous quote by Chase Manhattan Bank informing uh, later President Zedillo that he should probably just eliminate, quote unquote, the Zapatistas, meaning the indigenous people. And that would make things a lot more convenient uh, for the investment that is uh, for their investments in southern Mexico. Um, obviously, that's not a choice many of the indigenous are going to make. So the fourth choice would be to resist. And the resistance fully culminates on 1994, January 1st, New Year's Day, with the rise of the EZLN, who again had been working on organizing things under the CCRI since uh, the early 1980s. They decide on NAFTA Day, basically NAFTA Day is January 1st, 1994, that they will resist. They go on to occupy as many as seven municipalities in the southernmost Mexican state of Chiapas, and the rest, they say, is history. So that is the historical context for the Zapatista movement. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating in whatever app you are listening to this in. You can find the show notes for this episode on our website at revolutionandideology.com. 
find us on Twitter at Rev and Ideology. If you really like what we are doing, you can support us on Patreon, which gives us uh, more opportunity to create more and better content. Um, you can find us there on patreon.com slash revolution and ideology. I hope you enjoyed this episode and look forward to more episodes on the Zapatistas in the future.